You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hi, I'm Brian Murphy, and I'm your host for this week's Domecast, your weekly look at North Carolina politics. I'm joined this week by Will Doran and Dan Kane in Raleigh. And we want to start with redistricting. Obviously, it was the big news of the day uh, last week as North Carolina lawmakers redrew their the district for 2020, the 2020 congressional map. Uh, Will, what is the latest developments on that? Yeah, I think bottom line is we still don't know for sure what the maps are going to look like. Uh, the legislature did pass the maps um, on Friday, but there was almost immediately a, uh, a legal challenge filed to them. Uh, saying that essentially they are still uh, partisan outliers and claiming it's still, you know, unconstitutional gerrymandering and that basically it's just, it's not good enough. Yes, they they did redo them and it looked like the maps would go from maybe a, a 10 to 3 Republican advantage to an 8-5 Republican advantage, but the, uh, the Democrats who are challenging uh, say that... Um, they don't necessarily say that the eight five isn't good enough. I'm, you know, I'm sure obviously the Democrats would want more. Um, I think we heard uh, Congressman G.K. Butterfield, Democrat from Northeastern North Carolina, saying that you know it really should be a, a seven six split one way, or maybe even a you know six six with a swing district. And the uh, the swing districts are really, I th- I think, a big part of the the argument that the de- Democrats have on this. They say that. You have basically five safe Democrat seats, eight safe Republican seats, and nothing that's looking like a toss-up. Basically, there will be no competitive races. And we heard uh, uh, House Democratic leader Darren Jackson saying on the the floor of the state house here that you know, basically that makes politicians less accountable uh, to voters when they just you know they have a safe seat and they only have to play to the base. They don't have to look for compromises. They don't have to have any sort of moderating influences on them. And yeah, and I, Brian, uh, you, you covered it more on Friday than I did um, because I was out on Friday. So I, uh, I threw it over to you. But in the uh, in the Senate, it looked like there was, a, you know, oh, maybe a small amount of Democratic crossover on the vote, but it looked like it was pretty much a uh, pretty much a party line vote in the end. It was a it was a complete party line vote, and I, I think that's interesting about the the no swing districts. I mean, it, you know, when you look at the map, it seems pretty clear that the, it's an eight five breakdown, um, and that it would take a big giant wave election or maybe a scandal involving one of the members in order to get one of those districts to flip. Uh, the the, mo- the the interesting part of the new maps is that District Two, which is currently represented by George Holding, a Republican, and District Six, which is currently represented by Mark Walker, a Republican, uh, are really drawn in such a way as to produce a Democrat coming out of those out of those districts. I think uh, what you may see if these dis- if these districts hold up, if this map holds up, is in the western part of the state. You know, you may see Walker, uh, you know, run in a different district. Um, his staff had already put out uh, yeah, that 53% of the people he currently represents would be in a new District 13. Uh, that district is represented by Ted Budd, which would cover a new area that Budd doesn't currently represent. Um, and so it's interesting that what you may – the legislature worked very hard not to double bunk members, uh, but you may have some self-double bunking um, as people look for a, a better district for them to run in. Um, George Holding, of course, has indicated to us several times that if 
if there's not a district for him to run in, he he may not run. He said he told me last week that no one is entitled to to a seat in Congress, and so if the districts are drawn in in such a way that he would lose, that that no one is entitled to to a seat. Um, There was some talk up here, and I wonder if you heard any of it down there, that um, maybe some of these districts were drawn with an eye toward some in the state legislature possibly one day running for Congress. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of chatter down here uh, uh, during some of the votes, uh, you know, members accusing other members of uh, maybe trying to to draw a district so that it would, you know, maybe be advantageous for them to move that jump up uh, from the state legislature to Congress. Um, you know, there was also a lot of pushback <laughs> against those claims. Uh, you know, obviously no one wants to uh, to necessarily own up to that. Um, publicly, but there, there is definitely some speculation that a few people have their eyes on some districts and, um, you know, we'll see, like, I mean, like I said, you know, one way or another, we don't know for sure yet that these are the final, final maps. Um, it's in front of the court again, um, and they'll basically have to decide whether or not to let these pass or, uh, order them redrawn. Um, I have to imagine, you know, Republicans are probably pretty frustrated. They look at this and say, hey, look, you know, we essentially just sacrificed two of our members. You know, we went from a pretty solid 10-3 to a pretty solid 8-5. And, you know, there was even a study done by some Duke professors, including a professor named Jonathan Mattingly, who's one of the expert witnesses for the Democrats in these trials. He's a gerrymandering expert. And their study found that basically most of the ways of drawing maps, they drew thousands and thousands of versions of our 13 districts here and found that most of those resulted in an eight to five uh, Republican split. Some had a seven, six, some were six, seven the other way, but most of them were eight to five. So, you know, Republicans look at this and say, you know, when is this enough for you guys? Like, are, are you really looking for a, a fair map or are you just looking for the maximum partisan advantage? Right. And some of that came up in the in the debate as well. The interesting thing to remember is, you know, 2020, there'll be a new census. That means in 2022, new districts will be redrawn for the 2022 election. Um, North Carolina likely to get a 14th seat in the legislature in in the U.S. House. I'm sorry, which would necessitate redrawing the maps again. And so um, North Carolina has, has if these districts stand for 2020, or if new districts are made for 2020 and new districts are made again in 2022, we're talking about, you know, seven elections, five different maps. Uh, it's got to be um, a troublesome to voters who, who aren't even sure what congressional district they're in. Yeah. And especially, I mean, you see some of these areas moving around so much and, you know, you'll be represented by a Republican one year, Democrat one year, um, you know, represented by somebody from another city, two different years, uh, just because it's been it's been hopping around so much. Um uh, a couple things that we did see just to kind of uh, wrap things up on the uh, the maps here. Some of the, uh, and again, can't emphasize enough that, you know, they're not necessarily final. And who knows, we're recording this Monday morning, maybe by Monday afternoon, the judges will, uh, you know, have a new ruling out and it'll, you know, just, you know, make this entire podcast moot. Hopefully not, but check newsobserver.com for updates. <laughs> um but in, in terms of the maps, you know, talking about being in different areas, different districts uh, over so many different elections, uh, one thing that Democrats have really complained about in the congressional maps um, are that Asheville has been split up 
in a lot of the drawings of these maps ever since 2011, um, basically divided the the more liberal population of Asheville divided between two more conservative landing districts out there. Um, and also NCANT, uh, biggest HBCU, uh, not just the state, but the nation in Greensboro has been split up between uh, Walker and Bud, who we already talked about. Um, both of those under these current maps would be whole. Um, and that's part of the reason, obviously, why, uh, you know, it looks like Mark Walker would face a pretty tough uh, re-election is uh, his new district, uh, Guilford County, would be entirely whole. It wouldn't be split up at all. And then he would also get a lot of uh, Winston-Salem as well in that new district. Um, so that has Democrats fairly pleased. Um, and then obviously with uh, with Asheville uh, is now entirely in Mark Meadows' district. Um, Brian, what's the, what's the scuttlebutt up in D.C. about that? Um, it, it seems like Republicans down here seem to think that uh, that far western district that Meadows represents, even with adding all of Asheville, would still be a fairly solid Republican seat. Is that is that what people up in D.C. are saying too? Yeah, that's the take. If you look at the numbers and, and speaking to some people up here, is that even with all of Asheville included in that district, it would be a solidly Republican district. Um, you know, I spoke to Mark Meadows last week about you know, just because it's solidly conservative, is that a Mark Meadows type of district? And um, he said that he has a lot of support in Buncombe County. You know, not, not everyone in the county, you know, um, is is a liberal uh, just because, you know, Asheville's in the county. Um, but there is some, you know, there has been some talk in the past about Mark Meadows being uh, Donald Trump's chief of staff. Uh, that obviously didn't happen. Um, but it, it's possible when impeachment ends and, and you know, obviously that's the dominant storyline up here, um, that maybe Mark Meadows decides to do something else. Uh, I, I'm not reporting that. I'm not even speculating it. I'm just saying, um, you know, running running in these districts, running every two years may be something that, that some of these members decide not to do, especially if their districts get redrawn uh, dramatically. Um, the other the other thing I would point out is that in in the new maps or the current maps as they stand, uh, Wake there is a district that is wholly Wake County. Um, now all of Wake County is not in the district because the the population is too great, but there is a a district that is only Wake County, and obviously uh, the senses of that district would lean Democrat. Um, any anything else you guys want to add on on these districts? If not, we'll we'll move on to to talk to Dan about a big story that he did. No, I mean, and it looks like, you know, unless, again, unless, you know, court brings us back for some reason or if the legislature decides to, you know, change their minds, it looks like they're pretty much done for 2019. Um, you know, they adjourned until uh, January. So it looks like, you know, everyone's planning to hopefully be able to spend uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas off <laughs> celebrating with their families instead of uh, sitting at the legislature uh, debating with each other. That, of course, also means that, you know, some of the the vetoes uh, that didn't get overridden are going to, you know, stay in place until at least January. So, uh, you know, any potential teacher pay raises are going to be pushed back until January as well. That was kind of one of the big things. Um, but yeah, so unless something changes from the courts or the legislature or the governor, but as it stands right now, this is probably our, uh, our last uh, legislative action of 2019. One last note on the districts, the, uh, the filing deadline opens on December 2nd, it closes on December 20th, and so there is a tight timeline to make sure, uh, to, to certify, I guess, these new districts, um, because people need to know what district they, they want to run in. So obviously that December 2nd deadline is, is something to keep an eye on as we as we move on. Uh, Dan, you, you wrote about um, 
one of Speaker Moore's former aides, Mitch Gillespie, and uh, you know, sort of something with his retirement. Can, give us a, a brief explanation of how that all worked out this week or last week. Sure. Uh, what we learned uh, uh, is that uh, the legislature got billed one hundred forty-one thousand dollars over Mitch Gillespie's uh, retirement. And it has to do with a, a state law that was passed about five years ago um, to try to make sure that you know, what's paid in on behalf of somebody's retirement um, you know, reflects what will be paid out in a pension. Because um, and, and this is actually you know, uh, stemmed in some part from work that um, a series that we had done um, back in uh, 2013 about uh, public pay, in which we we discovered that there were community college um, presidents, um, a few across the state, uh, who were converting, you know, all of their their perks, things like uh, travel allowances, you know, maybe sort of special, you know, life insurance annuities, things like that, um, that normally wouldn't be counted towards um, your pension. Um, they were they were converting them into salary, or I should say, their their, their community college boards were converting these perks into salary, um, just as these folks were were nearing retirement. As a result, um, the formula for determining how much how much you'll get in a pension is, is largely based on your final four highest years of pay. So suddenly, their pay is elevated at the end, um, kind of artificially boosting um, uh, uh, this their, their their total pay in this pension formula, and they start getting paid much richer pensions uh, that their that their contributions to the system, that their employers' contributions into the system. And then, the, and then the returns on those contributions, because as you, as you probably know, most pension systems, they take that money, they invest it, they hope they get a good return, put all that together. Um, that's what that's what your pension payout should reflect. Um, but it wasn't with these kind of, you know, sweet little deals that were going on. So um, this law gets passed. And since then, um, you know, the treasurer's office is, has, um, you know, stayed up with, you know, people who are subsequently retiring and, and taking a look at what was put in and what was, uh, um, and what their pension um, would, would be determined under this formula. And if they find that if, that if the pension under the formula is higher, and this only has to do with uh, employees who make $100,000 or more, then that agency they work for is charged to make up the difference. So that's what happened here. Um, the interesting wrinkle to all this, now that I've talked about something already that's pretty elaborate, um, is that um, Mitch's retirement wasn't kind of the typical retirement. Um, what had happened is uh, in uh, um, uh, last year, uh, around uh, about the end of April, um, Mitch had stopped working for the speaker, but he hadn't retired. And I had done a story, actually, Will and I, we both worked on this we story. Yeah. And this had to do with um, uh, Mitch's involvement in trying to help Speaker Moore get uh, an environmental approval for a former chicken plant that he and some others owned. They needed to get that environmental approval uh, as part of selling that property. And Mitch, as an aide to Speaker Moore, he really, you know, it was pretty questionable that he would be getting involved in Speaker Moore's private business matters. And we wrote a story to kind of, you know, we had sort of the blow by blow between um, uh, Mitch and the, and the Department of uh, Environmental Resources. Uh, and then when I when we did that story, obviously I was looking for Mitch to talk to him and and, and to talk to others, and I was trying to figure out well where is Mitch, you know, and and I and I heard something that he may be retiring, uh, but um, I wasn't getting confirmation of that, and and so what I what we eventually discovered was 
that he'd stopped working at the end of April and then just collected sick leave to the end of the year with the idea that he would retire at the end of the year and that sick leave would serve as a bridge that would make him eligible for a partial retirement because he had served 20 years as a uh, state lawmaker and state employee. Well, um, you know, we broke that story and, and shortly after, um, um, well, basically what happened was that the treasurer said, well, you can't really count that sick leave. Uh, um, you're uh, you're going to have to um, either continue working or um, or wait till you um, hit 60. At least I, I believe this is what happened because this is how it played out. Um, uh, he, he did not return to work, but after he turned re after he, he reached 60, then he put in for his retirement. And so now what we're seeing is once that he has done that, the treasurer again looks to see whether, um, you know, what he's eligible for under the pension formula matches what was put in, found out that it didn't, and uh, charged, the, charged the legislature $141,000. Um, we needed a, to do a public records request uh, out of the um, legislative services uh, director's uh, office to get the letter to kind of spell out, you know, um, that, that this payment was required. Uh, and, um, and basically, in this case, it looks like a situation where, you know, Mitch was pretty low paid as a lawmaker, as all lawmakers are. Um, and, he, and he was a lawmaker for, I think, for 14 years. So uh, he had that going up against his final, you know, five years or roughly five years as a much higher paid, you know, state official and assistant secretary to uh, Pat McCrory, uh, Republican governor. And then, um, and then uh, a few more years as, as a policy aide for uh, Speaker Moore. So um, there, there could have very well been a situation where we just sort of had this imbalance here where, you know, his final, final four years were so much higher than, than the rest of his service that that triggered the $141,000 payment. And this is not a, an issue that's um, o only in North Carolina. I, I used to work in Idaho, covered the state government there. This was a, an often case of longtime lawmakers as they get close to their retirement deciding that they needed a, a higher paying job. And so they would get appointed to a board or they would become um, some official in the government where their salary would, would shoot up for those last few years of service and thus change the, the amount they get in their pension. So I think this is pretty endemic. Is there anything besides the law that happened you know, a few years ago, um, based on your reporting, is there anything new that the state is going to do, or is this sort of a, a strange situation in the in terms of Mitch Gillespie? Well, the, he is actually the first um, person to uh, whose pension is resulting in a, in a charge to the General Assembly. Um, but you can see where there are some other folks who have left the legislature for state jobs, uh, who, depending how long they stay in those jobs you know, could, could uh, trigger that, that so-called pension cap. And, um, and it is kind of, I, I do anticipate there may be some debate down the road about, um, you know, the, the, the lawmaker to state job sort of pipeline. Because on the one hand, you know, yes, I mean, it, it could very well lead to triggers of this pension cap. But on the other hand, you know, there's been also a lot of debate about, you know, the pay that these legislators get it's supposed to be a part-time job, but as we as we sit here, we just saw a session that lasted what eleven months. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> how part how part-time really is that? And and so you know who knows? Maybe we'll we'll see some discussion about 
you know, whether whether the pension cap law should fit those kind of situations or maybe or maybe. I don't know. We've seen a number of times where there's a debate about should the lawmakers be paid more? Should there be a full time legislature? Uh, you know, maybe somehow it, it, it pops up that way. So um, it is it is kind of an interesting situation. And, and, and he's sort of the I guess he's kind of the, you know, the canary in the, in the cage on this one. I mean, I often think that these lawmakers who, who spend way more hours than they, they actually get compensated for probably should get paid more, but uh, not a winning political issue to vote yourself a pay raise. That's the problem. Yeah, everyone really agrees that the pay should be higher, but uh, yeah, it, it would be uh, probably a pretty bad political choice to vote uh, to vote to give yourself a raise. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult one. Um, but I've you know you've seen some pretty um, uh, reasoned arguments for for doing that. You know, I think from I think from members on both sides even have, yeah, have talked I mean, about it. Like we said, they were they were in session basically the whole year this year. They only make a fourteen thousand dollars salary plus you know an additional one hundred and four dollars a day if they live far enough outside of Raleigh that they qualify for the the housing stipend. The other argument you could make is that it would open the door to to letting more people from more backgrounds uh, run for the state house. If if you were being paid a salary commensurate with with the n- amount of work you were putting in, you wouldn't have to be necessarily independently wealthy or retired or or have a job or a, a spouse uh, that allows you to to take that kind of job. That's true, and if nothing else, it could even just make the seats more competitive. Even if it doesn't open it up to you know a more uh, you know classes of people, it you know might make some you know. Especially some, you know, the, the more far-flung areas of the state, you know, might be a little bit more. Uh, you draw more people who be interested in running because exactly. they actually could afford to run. Exactly. Yeah. Or afford, or excuse me, not maybe, maybe not necessarily afford to run, <laughs> but afford to be to, to, in office. To be in office. Well, great, guys. We're, we'll be right back with our headliner of the week. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for headliner of the week. And Will, you go first. Um, I've got to go with Mark Walker. Um, if these new congressional maps stand, he looks like he is in very real danger of losing that seat that he's represented in Congress, and he has really been a pretty fast rising star in some Republican circles. You know, he's not been in Congress for that long, but he's gotten pretty prominent and clearly has ambition. He even thought about, uh, you know, running in a primary against uh, Senator Tom Tillis this year. Um, Obviously, we have another U.S. Senate seat that's going to be open in 2022 since Richard Burr has said that he's not going to be running for re-election. It'll be interesting to see what Walker does because it doesn't seem at all like he's ready to just be be done with politics, even if uh, you know these new maps don't work out for him. So does he does he jump into a primary against uh, Ted Budd? You know, like you said earlier, Brian, he specifically put out that statement noting that a bunch of his constituents are going to be in that new 13th district. I think he said over you know the district is what half of people that he already represents. Yeah, Walker was the Republican Study uh, Committee chairman. He is now a member of the Republican leadership team in the House, so it's it's clear that he has some ambitions uh, moving forward. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see uh, where he lands when this is all said and done, but uh, I think no matter what happens with the maps, we have not heard the last of him. All right, Representative Mark Walker in the hat for uh, Headliner of the Week. Uh, Dan? 
Uh, I think last week I talked about uh, Virginia. Uh, this week I'm picking another state, which is Louisiana, where a uh, Democratic governor uh, won re-election uh, despite you know a lot of effort by uh, President Trump to to knock him out. And last week also uh, the the Republican governor in Kentucky uh, conceded uh, again another state where you know the president was. Uh, trying to build support um, with, with visits and you know speeches and what have you, and and so um, I, I, I'm picking Louisiana, thinking again. I'm just kind of curious to see whether or not you know some of these recent um, political results are going to create some separation between other Republicans and and uh, President Trump, uh, particularly North Carolina. You know, uh, uh, Senator Tillis, who's up for re-election, has basically glued himself to the president, and and um, I'm just you know, wondering, you know, um, how long that continues given these continuing um, political outcomes. Yeah. Louisiana in, in the hat for uh, headliner of the week. I, th- I think that's a fascinating issue and it sort of ties into what I was going to talk about. And that is uh, Representative Mark Meadows, who's become, you know, uh, President Trump's staunchest defender on Im- impeachment. He's not a member of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, yet he attends all of the hearings. He's sort of the first one out into the scrum to talk to reporters and give his opinion or debrief on, on what he thinks happened. Um, and, and Meadows mentioned to me last week and other reporters that he thinks that the first polls that come out about impeachment um, once the public hearings start, and they started last week, are going to be a real indicator of, of which way this goes. If the public is really getting behind impeachment that may have a real factor. We we talk about impeachment and, and all of this as, as sort of a matter of law, um, but I think these politicians really see it as a matter of politics. And if the support uh, among Republicans um, starts to drop for the president, um, it will be interesting to see how Republicans respond to that. And I think that directly ties to what you were talking about, Dan. Um, the president campaigned hard in Louisiana, uh, was unable to get the result that he wanted. He campaigned hard in, in Kentucky, was unable to get the result he wanted there. Certainly, there are local issues that go into that. It's I don't think you could put it all on the president. Um, but if the president can't be a difference maker on the ground and his poll numbers start to slip, then I think uh, there may be some different conversations that people have about impeachment. Absolutely. All right. Well, Brian, who do you think uh, who do you think wins? Yeah. Given the option, I, I guess I can't pick myself on that one. I'm going to go with. Uh, Representative Mark Walker, I'm going to give Will the victory there. I think uh, his his political future is pretty fascinating, and it's directly tied to the way that the state lawmakers have decided to redraw these districts. So uh, Representative Mark Walker, his political future, our, our headliner of the week. I want to thank uh, Will Doran and, and Dan Kane for joining me on this week's edition of Domecast. Please download and rate and review our podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, I'm Brian Murphy saying so long. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.